0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Tonight, it is October 2nd of 2013, and tonight our guests are Gerald and Lydia Scott, who are co-founders of the Asheville Recovery Group, which is a recovery home which includes harm reduction practices. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is... Excuse me. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free of charge laylet support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking: A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org/book. Our guests, uh, Gerald and Lydia, are right here right now. How are, how are you doing this evening, guys?
1: Great. Thank you.
2: Doing very well, thank you.
0: Well, tell me a little bit. I, I know I connected with you on LinkedIn, and uh, Gerald, and you were talking about that, that you were having some difficulties uh, in uh, in uh, I believe with the recovery homes around you because uh, you did not require everyone to be abstinent. I think it's a good starting place.
2: Um, well, our home operates on the harm reduction basis. Um, To be clear, people cannot be using um, illicit drugs in the home, but we do work with doctors and clinics for people that are on prescribed medications, uh, methadone, subutex, or some other type medications. And so you know, in an abstinence based recovery world, um people don't want to recognize that process as someone being clean and getting sober how they can get sober. So that's that's what our house um does. Seth. Okay, I wanna ask you
0: for some clarifications on that, just so I have all the details correct. So um but uh, what if residents use uh, illicit drugs outside of the residence, Or Do you do drug testing to ensure that they don't use any illicit substances, or do you allow alcohol, or where do you stand on those things?
2: Um, we do not allow illicit drug use by the people participating in the program. Uh, most, all of them have gotten to a point where their drug use prior to being in our program has caused them significant problems. Jails, hospitalizations, significant car crashes, uh, you know, the the type of losses over time that would indicate they're in the class that they should not be using illicit drugs. So that's when they come to us voluntarily.
1: And what go ahead. I'd like to expound on that too. We also um will if we uh we do drug testing, but it's basically to um is to find out if they're using drugs and that they and if they don't want to be but they've had a slip and they have decided they wouldn't want to continue in the program, what we do is we will unlike most residences, we don't kick them out of the house. Right. Uh, what we do is is we try to find support or treatment for them so that they can go to that program and get stabilized and then come back to our recovery residence. And we always make sure that, you know, we talk to them about wanting to be in recovery. It's their choice. We don't stigmatize them if they still have cravings or they still want to use something like, for instance, like marijuana is a common topic. They will they will talk about that craving or wanting to do that, and they're not really sure if they permanently want to give that up. And we just try to talk with them about it and that, you know, and remind them it's their choice. It's up to them how much they want, you know, what they want to give up and what they don't want to give up.
0: hmm mm-hmm. So, well, that goes to my next question. Um, what about alcohol? Do you do you uh, encourage people to stop drinking completely, or is that their choice?
2: Again, most of, almost everyone that comes to us has already made that choice for themselves. So we're not we're not saying to our clients um, you have to give up alcohol use. They've come to us already, not wanting to drink anymore, but unable to stop. If that makes sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, what about the case of somebody that's, um, well, they've kicked heroin, for example, but they didn't ever have a problem with, say, alcohol or marijuana, and they want to pursue some social or recreational use of alcohol or marijuana?
2: What we would do would be to try and work with them to find a place for them to be that would support that, um, An example of that would be we had a young man uh, from out west who came to our home by way of his family, and he was there a couple months, and he really had a desire just to go home. Um, He got off heroin, but he still had a desire to use marijuana. So our plan for him over a six-week period was for him to continue working set aside enough money for a bus ticket home and then we helped him get back to his home environment where he lived, Um, it was decriminalized, so there was no problem for him and he never had any significant problem smoking marijuana. So for us to be able to help him stay clean off the heroin, um, find recovery there and then get him back to an environment where he felt comfortable was good. I mean, that, that for us is a successful outcome.
0: Well, that's a very sensible approach. And it's also a rather uncommon approach, I think, in recovery home. Um, would you agree?
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Our, we've actually, over here on the East Coast, particularly, we, uh, it's very, it's a very conservative Uh, abstinence-based approach for like 99% of recovery residences, if not higher. So um, our harm reduction is basically geared around um, methadone and Suboxone and Subutex and having naloxone in the house, which is unheard of. We actually have a naloxone kit, which is known as some people uh, as Narcan, and we have that in a an emergency box right on on the wall, and it has it it has a needle that goes with it and um it's it's um that's that's un, that's unheard of and it actually uh gets out in the neighborhood that we actually have an, an an injection needle on our wall if anybody needs one, so we're known as the a flop house or something like that i guess but um You know, we that's as far as we take can take harm reduction in this group home environment. Um, Because you mentioned, you know, um, harm reduction as far as alcohol is concerned, we really can't allow people to drink in the home because that would trigger other people who don't want to drink. So we have to consider the group environment as far as triggering other people and just allowing. Um, the methadone, suboxone, subutex, et cetera, it sometimes triggers other people who are are not using any kind of um, medication. So, you know, at least that's what we have to do, lots of discussion around that sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do, do a lot of your residents, do they follow 12-step programs or do they not follow 12-step programs? How do they feel about that? Is it mix?
2: It, there's a mix. Um, kind of our position on that is you don't have to do a 12-step program. In fact, we refer to that uh, genre of, of services as mutual aid. Um, you know, you have smart recovery. You have 12-step recovery. You have uh, Buddhist temples. um churches, you have social groups, There, therapy, counseling. I mean, there are all types of um, places where people come together for mutual aid. So, sure, 12-step group if they want, but we require that they do something that's quantifiable.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I've found in my experience, I don't know if this is the same As you found or not, so I'm just comparing notes because I don't think this has really been studied. Um, But I found that a lot of people that uh, that choose abstinence for their goal who are not involved in twelve step groups they're much more open to accepting moderation or harm reduction or medication-assisted recovery, among others. And I found that people in twelve step groups. most of the time they seem to say that, that their way is the only way and everybody else is doing it wrong.
1: That that can be uh, a problem sometimes because people who have come from that point of view and who have recovered that way or found change in their life, um, they become very um, adamant about it, excited about it. That was actually my uh, perspective before I went through, I I kind of hate to admit it now, but it was, it was my perspective uh, before I went through my master's program and looked at harm reduction. One of my professors actually would not allow me to just do all my projects on uh, 12-step programs, and and she encouraged me to look at harm reduction, and it really changed my point of view dramatically. So, you're right, um, there can be, they can be very almost militant about it and we're trying to change that in our area but it's a slow process and, and that
2: that's also one of the reasons why um, if we have a young man in the house who let's say is on a controlled substance medication um, and he goes to a 12-step meeting narcotics anonymous let's say Uh, And they don't feel comfortable. A lot of times they're kind of ostracized or marginalized because they're on medication. And so in that case, you know, we want our clients to find a place that they fit. So we're not going to say to them, well, you need to go to those meetings. What we're going to do is put out some options for them and get them to try some different things um, like, for instance, smart recovery, which i'm sure you're, you may, you may be mm-hmm. familiar with that, um, so yeah we don't we don't want them going somewhere where they're not welcome,
0: yeah, I know smart is really about uh, abstaining from the substance you're choosing to abstain from uh, you know if you choose to abstain from say alcohol but not marijuana, I know in smart that's not an issue
2: mm-hmm. um, well, where we look at it with our clients is. Let's say in our area, marijuana is not decriminalized. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. we would say to the client, you know, can you afford to be downtown and have one of the sheriffs, you know, arrest you for uh, possession and, you know, having marijuana? Or does your employer drug test if you get hurt? And what if it's in your system? Do you lose your job and your benefits? So some of the cost benefit analysis. Um, of smart recovery is also things we put forward to our clients.
0: Oh, I absolutely agree with you. Um, In fact, if people in our group opt that they want to do uh, marijuana maintenance um, and stop drinking and just do marijuana, I say, well, that's really good if you're ready to move to Washington or Colorado, or if you can go to California and get a prescription. New York City, not so good.
2: (laughs) Correct. And that's our position, too. Like I previously mentioned, the young man that we helped get back to his hometown where it's decriminalized. And quite frankly, I wish it was decriminalized across the country. Um, I, I just think that would be better for everybody.
0: I think so, too. You know, medication assisted recovery is is a really interesting Topic. If you look at it historically, and, and I do consider that you know medical marijuana is one version of medication, so that it's assisted recovery for a lot of people. But you know, in the early days of twelve step, they were debating whether or not taking aspirin was relapse.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and, the, and the debate continues <laughs> on on various levels. I think it's changed a lot, but it there's still a, a ways to go. Um, probably a little bit further for AA, um, A-N-A N- still will not, um, there's still a hot debate on, um, when somebody should pick up a chip if they're on methadone or Suboxone. So, um, I, but they've made, but they're obviously more progressive than AA. I mean, I, I think AA has got its benefits for sure, but, um. But there's a, you know, I just wish they were a little bit more welcoming to people on on medication-assisted treatment.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. In the late 50s, um, when they were experimenting in Saskatchewan with LSD treatment for alcoholism, and the researchers there, uh, I think it's a- um, Abram Hoffer, I think it was. I can't remember. No, I think I got the wrong guy. No. Anyway, one of the researchers from Saskatchewan introduced Bill Wilson to LSD, and you know he he kind of really liked it and did it a lot, even though they told him you only need to do it once.
1: I think that's in the the new movie coming out about him and the documentary. I think they
0: just put that in there. Yeah, so you know they were at one point they were worried if aspirin was relapse, but then LSD is going to be the cure. Yeah, so it's kind of gone back and forth a little bit, and then the, later in the '60s, they were talking about uh, well, blood pressure. Well, the '70s and '80s, I think they were talking about blood pressure medications could be a relapse and antidepressants for sure. Prozac was not welcome, and then right. I know currently they've issued official AA literature that says no, your medications are between you and your doctor. It's not between you and your sponsor. It's not between you and your AA group. I mean, they have official literature out now that says Mm -hmm. your doctor is supposed to prescribe your medications. But, boy, there's still an awful lot of sponsors in some of those uh, conservative AA groups that say, you're on Prozac, you're you're relapsing.
2: Yeah, and that's unfortunate because, I mean, there are people that need medication, and that's just a fact. And they may not need it forever. They may use it for a short period of time or their entire life. The fact that they're taking medication should be irrelevant. And that's our point when it comes to the harm reduction. You know, if someone comes who's had an awful heroin addiction, you know, has been down and out with it, lost everything, they get clean off the illicit heroin, street heroin, and they, start using some medication, they're working with a counselor and they're regaining stability in their life, you know, for, for any 12 step fellowship to say, Oh, Hey, that person's not clean. For me, it's just outrageous. I mean, it's outrageous.
0: Well, I I to, yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. Um, and if you look at uh Methadone, and buprenorphine in particular, which is a, a partial agonist, you don't, you can't get high. Um, buprenorphine there's a cutoff where after the dose makes you normal, you can't just take more and get higher and higher. Just it levels right. off. Right, right, exactly. So it's a, it's a very different situation than getting high on street heroin, and methadone too. Although it's a full agonist, the, the doses tend to be. I mean the doses. People that distribute it try to uh, regulate the dose so that you're not high and loaded, but that you're functional and normal.
2: Right.
1: Right. Right. There's a there's a beginning period of induction. Uh, the first couple of weeks uh, when somebody goes into the clinic where they're getting stabilized, so it's kind of like being on a new medication, and they may be you know, a little over-medicated or under-medicated while they're trying to get stabilized. And that's the kind of, I don't know, sometimes people see that and it can be disturbing to them if they're, especially if they're an absence-based believer only. And um, so we've seen that. That can trigger some of the other people and, you know, like in in our group home, some people get triggered by that or they get upset by that. But that's where education comes in, you know. Right.
2: And that's where, when we said originally in in the opening comments that we have problems with some of the other homes, because we work with people on medication and because a person may have a lapse of of their personal recovery, um, we just don't immediately discharge that person. We try and work with them. And You know, it's different for every person. And so when other recovery homes, they say, oh, well, you know, Asheville Recovery Group, that's the place you can, you know, go live and use. And they just, that closed-minded mentality um, that we're discussing that is, you know, prevalent in some of the 12-step groups is a lot of those people are the people that are managing other recovery homes. And so we'll hear that from them. And you know we take kind of a beating that's from that.
1: Well, but it's not just the recovery homes, but it's the re, the, uh, dis, the treatment centers that Correct. are discharging to recovery homes, and they overlook us because of these myths about harm reduction. So we have actually uh, struggled financially because of discrimination or and not knowing about the harm reduction process and what it really means and how helpful it is. There's tons of research to back it up.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, it's really essential uh, to educate uh, treatment providers and treatment programs about the value of harm reduction, and that has been taking place in New York City, uh, in the state of New York, actually. Um, the New York State Department of Health, uh, they they operate, I think, 14 treatment centers in the state of New York, and they are all slated to do naloxone trainings for the for the clients before they are discharged, they're, they're not all doing it yet, but they've all slated to do it. Several of them are. Uh, several of the other private treatment centers here in New York State, and New York City, are doing naloxone trainings and overdose prevention and teaching people that when you you know when you leave treatment, if you use the same amount of heroin you you were using when you came in, you're very likely to overdose because your tolerance is way down and. They're teaching them where to get an naloxone kit when they leave, and you know how to how to do a reversal.
1: Right,
0: right.
2: And we have uh, the is it the North Carolina
1: harm reduction coalition, mm-hmm. North
2: Carolina harm reduction coalition, and it is Robert Childs. Yeah. Um, he's the gentleman that came out to our program and did the presentation, and then he is a uh, has a standing order from a doctor. Um, in North Carolina, so he can pass out the naloxone medication kits, um, which is really great. Their organization helped get the law changed in North Carolina to essentially make prescribers uh, un- fall under the Good Samaritan Act, so they can't get in trouble for prescribing it. Um, so
1: we have several kits now at our at our recovery residence.
2: Yeah, I carry one in my glove box in my car and. There's the one on the wall and a couple in the office. Um so we haven't had to use them yet, but just knowing that they're there um is is yeah. really helpful.
1: And all the uh uh clients in the house were trained on how to use them and what how what's appropriate, et cetera, or mm-hmm. how to use them.
2: Yeah, it's part of our intake process now in the house.
0: Yeah, we had Robert Childs on the show a couple years ago, I think, and also we had some people from Project Lazarus, which is also in North Carolina, which is a huge overdose prevention project. I mean, North Carolina used to have the largest number of overdoses, I think, in the country, and now they're way among the lowest number because of these excellent harm reduction projects that are taking place.
2: That's correct. Yes, it it was actually scary how high the overdoses were here.
0: And I have a Narcan kit myself. I have the intranasal. Do you,
1: is that available to you there? Yes, it is. Um, I think it was. Um, they have to order order them. They don't have them on in you know kind of in stock, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can. Uh, the Harm Reduction Coalition can order them for us for like I think it's like twenty three or twenty four dollars. Very cheap. So.
0: Okay. Yeah, now the majority of our trainings uh, that we do at Lower East Side Harm Reduction are with the intranasal. They're not using the intramuscular very much anymore. They're kind of phasing it out. For me, you know, I never shot needles. Um, I never injected anything to myself And the idea of kind of shooting somebody, uh, you know, even with this intramuscular shot that they say it's very easy, just stick it through through the clothes and just shoot them in the arm or the butt, and it's just, you know... I'm carrying the intranasal cuz I just don't feel comfortable doing
2: that. <laughs> I think uh if if our agency was a little better funded we would probably have, you know, several of those kits around but uh the IM kits are what the coalition provided us at no cost so that's what we went with.
0: Yeah. Uh, the Department of Health is providing us with the with the intranasal at no cost now so it doesn't okay.
2: matter. Right. Wow. Well,
1: that that would be really great because the kind of the problem with having them in the house distributing them to the clients is that, unfortunately, a lot of them were opiate users and they get triggered, et cetera. Um, so we were as, as, asking about the intranasal that they could carry, and we would get them if they. Um, uh, well, hopefully, we will be able to get them soon. You know.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Um, so, so let me ask you some more about the medication assisted recovery, the buprenorphine and methadone. Um, so, do you get referrals from clinics? Uh, is that are there a lot of methadone clinics and things there that you get referrals from?
2: There, there are about five clinics in Buncombe County, um, and. We do get a few referrals from there. Uh, most of our referrals come from some discharge planners at a few different treatment centers that use medicated assisted treatments. And then the rest come from our website. Um, oh, yeah, website plug AshevilleRecoveryGroup.org. <laughs> um, so they come from those places. Um, not too much from the clinic stuff.
0: Okay. Okay. You know, I remember my own time when I was in sober housing, you know, after I completed my first treatment program and, you know, I kind of walked in there and I said, you know, I don't plan to drink as long as I'm here, but the day I leave, I plan to drink again. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and this is my plan. And I'm not going to give you any bullshit about uh, that I want to do 12 steps or be abstinent forever because it's not my plan. I plan to be a controlled drinker and not be the same kind of drinker I was before. I, I voluntarily checked myself into treatment and, um, you know, kind of sh- greeted with looks of shock. But uh, they did let me go to. Um, they let me go to uh, Rational Recovery instead right. of AA. Now, this tells you how many years ago that was. They still had Rational Recovery live meetings. They hadn't changed into Smart yacht. Mm. So that was, uh, oh, that had to be the mid-90s. Uh, okay. But, you know, I did perfectly fine on my plan. And I watched a lot of people there that were, you know, going in and buying into the, or at least, you know, saying they were buying into the whole shtick
2: of, you know, 12-step recovery, and they were
0: relapsing all the time.
2: So if we had a client that came into our home in in a similar fashion, we would say to them, okay, while you're here, um, these are the things we would like you to get a grip on. You know, how are you managing your personal hygiene? How are you managing your personal space, your clothing, you know, your general living conditions? Um, can you cook for yourself? Can you manage food for yourself? Uh, if we have clients that start working again, we ask them to do a written budget sheet so they can get their numbers in black and white. So,
1: or schooling. Or
2: schooling, exactly. We've got a couple of clients that are at school. So we don't say to someone, well, you know, when you leave here, you can't drink, you can't do this, you can't do that. We say... Get as many of your ducks in a row, and before you leave here, and then make your decisions once you're out there. So, it, you know, we don't we don't really have a position on that one way or the other. We're just trying to help someone define what success is for them personally.
0: And how how do you how successful do you think um your program is in retaining people, uh keeping them, you know, following the their chosen programs. Uh do you have to discharge a lot of people or not?
1: Wow, I think um as a matter of fact, that's that's a good question. Um we have people there that don't want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually we partially because we have lots of good food. We are of food bank provider. And I think that's that's a big draw right there, but um really, I find that I'm not the executive director, uh, Gerald's the executive director. He's there day in and day out, and I think that they just like the structure and or the the supportive environment i I think letting people know that you're trying to meet them where they are and you accept them, um, and that you're going to try to support them in what they want to do um, is is a really attractive kind of policy. And so I think we have seen tremendous changes in, in not all of the clients, but uh, probably about 50%, I say, I think, um, dramatic tra- changes. And there was one person who, there's some of them in, that say, I want to get off of everything. and And we actually kind of, Sometimes put the brakes on them and say, "Whoa, whoa!" You know, are you sure about this? And there's been a few that have just wanted to come off everything, and um, have been really successful with it. And you know, we're we're really impressed with some of the some of the clients. They just really amaze us sometimes.
2: Well, and I I can say that <clears throat> the only things that you will get discharged from our agency for, from, from the house immediately for is an act of violence or behaving in such a way that a reasonable person would believe that you were going to strike them
1: or, or harm them or harm them. Right.
2: Yeah. Or harm them in some way. So exactly. Um, we don't allow extortion in the house um, of any kind, and we don't allow um anyone to uh pressure someone while well, it's extortion. So just extortion covers it. So those things will get you discharged from the home. Um other than that, we have a a matrix that we use, a decision matrix that looks at about 39 different aspects from a person's safety in the home, uh, safety in the community, uh, the well-being of the other residents, including the well-being of our therapy animals that live in the home. Um, So we look at all these different aspects on a printed chart, and I go through a process on that, and I kind of assess where that person falls in, in on the chart. And that weighted chart produces some options. Um, and then we sit down with the client and we say, you know, here's where we're at. And this is the decision that we've made as a clinical group. Um, what do you want to do? So most of the time we don't discharge a client. They choose to leave. Uh, rarely do we out and out discharge someone. maybe one out of 20 gets discharged, one out of 25 gets discharged.
0: Yeah, that's just really different from, you know, my experience with uh, standard sober housing where it's, uh, you know, one out of two or maybe two out of three get discharged because, well, you had a dirty urine or you blew, you know, the alcohol on your breath, you blew oh, 0.01, you had to have beer sometime today, and, you know, people get kicked out right and left because uh, that was zero tolerance, you know. It,
2: it, but, you know, it's like, uh, it's like kicking someone out of a, a cardiac patient out of the hospital because they're having a, a dysrhythmia. It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh,
1: and And we had the philosophy early on that once you discharge somebody, you have lost all potential to help them.
0: Well... You know, I'm in absolute agreement because you know you you watch people the majority of people don't get don't get it perfect overnight. You know when Prochaska studied cigarette smokers, he found the average- cigarette, cigarette smoker took five attempts to successfully quit. You know having some slip ups on the way, you know is not unusual it's It's not the same as saying, "Well I changed my mind, I want to be a wholehearted drug user again that's That's a different thing.
1: Right. Exactly. Correct. And, and that's one reason why we kind of gauge what we look more at what kind of program or, or what is your choice, whether it's smart recovery or church or or, or an outpatient program or, or the 12-step program. What are you doing to reduce the chance that you're going to accidentally slip up? So Because we know accidents happen. But if somebody is really working at it, we at maintaining some sort of uh, engagement in the, in their program, not some sort of, but they're engaging in their program, and they flip, That's different than somebody who says, I don't, I don't want to do anything. I'm not going to do anything, and I really don't. I would really just want to return to drug, you, you know my drug of choice or whatever. That's a different situation. But usually um, if they're engaging in their program, we try to work with them also.
0: Yeah, that's that's absolutely the way to go. Um, well, what, what else do you want to tell me about?
1: Oh, uh, sure, so much. I think the thing about our, something that we just don't seem to be able to get, that people don't believe about us, is that we're almost a turnkey operation um, that when somebody comes in and, and pays their weekly service fee, that they they have almost everything at their disposal that they need to live. Like, they have food, they have everything from toiletries to bedding, and everything. And people don't seem to believe that about us. They just... It's almost like it's too good to be true or <laughs> something.
2: Yeah, it is... Uh... It's like today, Wednesdays, is the agency's uh, shopping day. And so I returned from the Feeding America program through our local agency, Manor Food Bank. Um, And because we're a nonprofit and we're vetted, we're authorized to go there. And I brought home everything from bug spray to vitamins, band-aids, shampoos, food, Um, laundry detergent and I mean every week we go and we bring home about depending on the week four to six hundred pounds of household supplies and our guys have everything they need Um, like say from toothbrushes to dinner and everything in between plus they have a qualified professional and they you know a social worker and and they have um, also, substance abuse counselors. Um, so that it's everything. We even have partners in the community if they don't have uh, sufficient clothing that we can take them to to help them get clothing. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and even we have bus passes. Yeah, even transit.
2: bus pass, transit passes, and just pretty much everything. So
1: everything they need, but not everything that they want. And so, <laughs> so I mean that that's off the harm reduction reduction topic. But um, I think that the idea is that, you know, we just try to be progressive all the way around. Um, we try to, you know, we believe in fair housing. And this is also a fair housing issue. Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I, I'm not really sure. I think it's just something that people don't really think exists yet. So they're not a lot of people just won't accept it. I don't know. And I think the harm reduction um, philosophy kind of throws some people, and they just don't even want to look at who we are and what we do for people.
2: And to follow up on what Lydia is saying, for a while in our agency, when we spoke publicly or we, you know, had our website or other uh, printed content, we didn't make the harm reduction philosophy. Prominence, but um, we decided that we were we were not we were not going to hide or I don't know how to say this
1: soft pedal soft
2: pedal thank you very much we were not going to soft pedal what we do either counselors discharge planners whoever either they agree with what we do and understand it and they're mm-hmm. open to it. Or they're not and either way it's fine but we're just not trying to um, chase after people that don't want to hear our message and so that's something that's changed for us this year and you know our community that the agency home in is wonderful all our neighbors are supportive of us Um,
1: we're the quietest house on the block yeah we're the
2: quietest house on the block Um, and and so we're just, Lydia said it, we're not soft peddling what we do anymore and how we do it. So. But
1: we need to reach a lot more people. Yes. To let To let them know that we're here. We're hoping to expand. And uh, we're actually getting together with Robert Childs tomorrow yes. to talk about um, getting how to get harm reduction grants and hopefully we'll be able to serve more people uh, and expand our program to other cities. Because we know there's a great need out there, and um, so hopefully you'll see it in other cities <laughs> soon. <laughs> well, I think it's
0: I think it's hugely important to be vocal about this, and you know, it's something I've seen a lot in New York City. Is there's there are in recent years a lot of agencies that are adding harm reduction services but they're not vocal about it. They're just really keeping it on the QT. You know, right. I know agencies that do syringe exchange, but you go on their website, there's no mention of syringes, injection, anything. And um, I'm not going to name names, but I don't think that's the way to go. I think you have to be really vocal about this.
2: Well, and and we agree. Um, we recently launched a rebuild of our agency website, and it says in header size print right across the top of the page a clinically managed harm reduction recovery residence and we have a lot of articles on harm reduction um, and so we've just made it very prominent and you know the people that understand what we do understand its value when it comes to a personal recovery program and and they'll they'll find us uh, hopefully we can work with uh, Robert Childs in this area and get a little more exposure.
1: Yeah. And, and too, you know, we we can't, like we said, we can't do harm reduction as far as um, having people drink in the house. I knew there's some houses called wet houses. I think there's even a, a show on it. Uh, I can't remember where I saw it, Um, but I thought that was very interesting. Um, But we don't go that far or if, you know, and, there it is, would be a different
2: program if we did it. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's say there that. is um, a program here, though, in Asheville, North Carolina, for the – I think it's – I'm not sure if it's just for veterans, but um, where they house – they are housing people now here that have they, – they're not requiring them to be abstinent in, in order to house them anymore, and that's progress.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But it's their own – that they have their own apartment.
0: Yes, yes, that's a scatterbed model, as opposed to the single site model. The, oh. the wet house uh, for, in Seattle, which is very well researched, it, that's a single site model. And then the the uh, mm-hmm. Saint Anthony wet house in Saint Paul, which has been uh, in videos a lot. Doctor Drew was talking about it. I used to I lived there. I was a resident there for a while. Oh, really? So, wow. Yeah, but Doctor Drew didn't want me on his show to give my opinion. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Dr. Dr. Drew has never returned one of my Twitter tweets towards him in three years.
1: So. <laughs> well, and I think that, you know, those, see, we could consider something like that if we had the scatter site model. But since we have a group home situation, we have to kind of, you know, ca- then the policies or taking the policies to everybody in the home. And w- so it's not, you know, harm reduction to the nth degree. It, we go so far with that philosophy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at this time.
0: Yeah, the scatterbed model has been much easier to uh, integrate. Um, in mm-hmm. New York City, for example, there is no single-site harm reduction housing, but there's a lot of scatter bed that's been around for a oh, quite a number of years now. Uh, Sam Simbers was one of the people that was, uh, you know, uh, one of the spearhead people, one of the first people researching this in New York City, who was on our show too a while back. So everybody go in the archive.
1: (laughs) Okay. Right, right. And I think too, you know, when you're talking about different programs, different programs have, there's a spectrum or different policies of harm reduction, and it can be on a spectrum, like maybe, if an agency can't go to all the way to one end of the spectrum of harm reduction, well, maybe they can go 10% or 20% of incorporating it where they can. You know, they don't have to go 100%. They can go 50%. What can we do as far as incorporating some of these things that are evidence-based practices into our policies and procedures?
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, one of the most obvious ones is overdose prevention that should be part of every residential, every treatment program, residential, outpatient, whatever, that treats people that with opiate uh, use disorders. They should all learn about overdose prevention.
2: This doesn't mean that we're telling you to go out and overdose. Right. right. Well, it's my opinion. I, I worked as a medic, uh, EMT, IV tech, for several years. And so I've used the medication in the field before. Um, But my personal opinion is that it is now legal in North Carolina for anyone to possess the medication and use that medication without any fear of repercussions. So if you run a recovery home and you have clients in your home that are at statistically high risk for overdose and you don't have that available in the house my mind says that that is can make you libelous because it's available to not have it is unreasonable
0: mm mm-hmm. and not only to not have the medication but not to not educate the people about right. how their tolerance changes about the dangers of of mixing medications because you know the, the almost all opiate overdoses are either you know they either have alcohol involved or benzodiazepines involved, some other drug involved,
2: yes right. exactly mhm
1: exactly,
2: Yep, and uh it's you know we have some policies when we have someone lapse in the house <clears throat> about medical attention after the lapse um occasionally you'll get someone you know they'll relapse late in the evening after uh, the staff is gone and then we'll get some kind of report, you know, someone is, uh, they think someone's overdosed. We'll go in and they have to be seen by a doctor because we can't let them go back to sleep. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we have, um, some crisis units and we have some local EMS that are really good about it. And once they're seen and, Cleared medically that they're not going to <clears throat> expire in their sleep, then they can come back into the home. And then the following day, we'll look at the situation, you know, assess how they got to that point, what triggered them, are there any other illicit drugs in the home, things like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But that initial process when someone lapses, my goodness, if, if they were in an overdose, and knowing that medication was available and not having it in the house, I would panic. I, I would, I would just panic. So, having it there is reassuring.
0: Yeah. Before we leave the topic of overdose, I just have to mention my pet peeves here about some of these television shows that are just uh, or movies that just annoy the hell out of me. Uh, you know, one is Pulp Fiction, where they bring the guy back with injecting adrenaline into his heart. Yes. <laughs> it's, not gonna, it's not
2: going it's not going to work. It doesn't work.
0: It doesn't work because your brain the center of your brain that controls breathing has stopped your breathing. It's not a, that your heart stopped. It's right. your breathing stopped. You got to knock those opioid molecules off the brain.
2: And there's the uh, injecting warm salt water, injecting milk, the, none of that works.
0: And then um, Breaking Bad, we saw the girl having a heroin overdose and she's choking on her own vomit. Well, uh, as I did the research, I mean, that maybe happens in one case in a thousand or less. Mm -hmm. But normally it's just the breathing stops.
2: Right. Respiratory distress followed by respiratory arrest followed by cardiac arrest.
0: So you're teaching people to look for the wrong things. If they're looking for somebody choking on their vomit as a sign of uh, opiate overdose, you're looking at the wrong thing. You should be looking for somebody turning blue.
2: Right? Yeah, because the gag reflex, of the vagal nerve, is basically shut down once you reach that point of overdose.
0: Yeah. So I mean, uh, some of these TV shows are just really teaching people the wrong things. Uh,
2: <laughs>
0: um, uh, you know, I, it's, I wish we could hold them liable for misinformation. You know. <laughs>
2: right. <laughs> I don't think that's going to
0: happen. <laughs> well, at least I can tell them the right thing to look for on the show here because we know what's, ha- what's going to happen. We know mm-hmm. people's breathing is going to slow. They're going to start turning blue. And you're not going to bring them back with a shot of adrenaline to the heart. you got to use Narcan.
2: Right. And, and you know, the uh, they're difficult to wake. Um, they don't respond to painful stimulus like a sternum rub. Um, they have blue lips, blue fingernails, and they become very flaccid. So all of those signs, especially the not responding to painful stimulus, that's even if they're breathing and they don't respond to a sternum rub or some other type of painful stimulus, it's and they've been using the opiates, it's it's time for uh, the Narcan.
0: Yeah. Oh, and the other thing in Pulp Fiction where the guy comes back to life and he says, "Oh, that was the greatest rush ever." Well, that's not going to. That's not what they're going to say if you shoot him with Narcan because you're going to you going to kill all the high. They're going to go into withdrawal. They're going to be sick, unhappy, miserable, and they're going to maybe be very pissed off at you for shooting them with Narcan.
2: Yes, I've had people tell me in the medic unit um, that. They just blew $100, and I owed them money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, well,
0: you should have uh, injected your $100 a little more carefully and a little more, little bit at a time. Use yeah,
1: Over time, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Use <laughs> testers, tester shots, they call it.
1: <laughs> but the thing is, is to, to uh, do this procedure, you have to have it on you. It's kind of, I think there's some things that people should always carry on them, you know, kind of like epinephrine, you know, some, or Benadryl and and Narcan <laughs> and and maybe some charcoal, activated charcoal. Then you're ready for about any emergency, but, you know, to help your, your neighbor. If you don't have it, you know, more than likely it's going to be too late by the time the ambulance gets there.
2: Well, that's it, the point. most of the time it is, and
0: I it ever does. Right. Well, I have my Narcan kit in my backpack, and I carry it with
1: me all the time. That is awesome. That is great. And I, 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 <laughs> I'm i going to get mine. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here saying this, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm talking to myself, too. You know, so we just got these about, what, a month ago? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yep, just throw it in the trunk.
2: Yeah, I just keep it in my glove box, my car.
1: So,
0: so it's good to be prepared. Well, I think uh, we're about running out of time, so I want to thank you for being our guest. And is there anything particularly you want to leave us with?
2: Um, just uh, I appreciate your your work doing this show Definitely. Definitely. And, and all the work that you're doing in the harm reduction and the opportunity. Um you know, if anyone listening to the show does need a safe, professionally run um, recovery home that understands the harm reduction, there, please more than welcome to give us a call. Or any clinicians out there uh, that need this type of service, um, or in, and again, if anyone you know uh, pass the information along to them, uh, we would appreciate it.
0: And what's the website?
2: It's Asheville Recovery Group dot O R G. And a lot of people don't know Asheville has an E in it. It's A-S-H-E-V-I-L-L-E Recovery dot O R G.
0: And they can Google Asheville Recovery Group and they'll find it too.
2: Yes, and we've got pretty good search places. Yeah.
0: Okay. I wanna thank you guys very much for being our guest this evening. Thank you. Thank you
1: for having us on here. We do appreciate the work you're doing.
0: Thank you very much. And we'll be back in a couple weeks. I'm a little too busy next week to do a show, but in two weeks we'll have another show for you. So thank you, everyone, and good night.